to ask you a question. What, what Bible character or maybe like what groups of people in the Bible do you resonate with? I mean, like, like somebody that you say, yeah, that's kind of like me. Like, that's my spirit animal. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like a character, you know, maybe like somebody like Abraham or uh, maybe like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Maybe they embody something like your character. Maybe, the, maybe their story is kind of like your story. You know, I used to resonate a lot with Peter, I think, because Peter, I called him the you know, blue-collar disciple, and he failed so many times, and yet God reinstated him. That was somebody I, I tend to gravitate toward, uh, Peter or, uh, you know, uh, maybe Andrew or uh, John or maybe even Paul, one of these uh, disciples, uh, and then later the missionary, the great missionary Paul. Maybe, maybe that's who you think about when you try to pick somebody uh, that you resonate with. Over the last uh, five to seven years, for me personally, when I read through the scriptures and I, I, I think about who do I resonate with the most, uh, it's actually none of those. And, and I, I say this not in a prideful way. I'm not proud of this. But the more I read the scriptures, the more lately I have identified most with the Pharisees. I have. Now, why do I say that? Uh, because I'm just like them. I am the religious establishment of my time. I am seated uh, in the place of religious authority in my community. I'm living in a time of cultural upheaval and change. And there are many times that I feel threatened. And so I, I think about that. I think about how I respond. Have you ever, ever kind of like pondered like what you would have been like if you were in first century in Jerusalem and this dude just shows up who says he's the son of God and he does these miracles. Like how would, I mean, literally, how would you have responded uh, to somebody who came in and shook up the whole system like what you were accustomed to? I think many times I have gotten accustomed to uh, my religious system. I've gotten accustomed to how things are done. And the more I read about how Jesus sees those folks of the religious establishment, I realize that I'm, I'm, I'm probably more like them than I want to admit. And it's true. Uh, the word Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word parushim, which means to set apart. It, it means the ones who are set apart. And it was part of a, a revival movement in the first century uh, where basically it was kind of like a, a back to the Bible movement where they said, hey, we want to go back to Scripture. We want to live out the law in the Old Testament, and we want to match up how we live uh, with what the Scripture says. And that sounds well and good. But then it kind of took a turn, and it, it shifted from a personal piety to this kind of collective uh, pursuit, this obsession, if you will, with being cultural monitors of the righteousness level around them and the society at large. And it kind of crossed over from not focusing on a personal piety, but becoming a monitoring system for the culture around them. And, and some of that uh, cultivated into a condemning spirit where those folks, those religious folks got so consumed uh, with how everybody out there was not living like they were living. And it actually uh, res resulted in a vocal angry attempt to manage uh, the morality of the public at large. And it led to major hypocrisy. It led to major legalism and really abuses of judgment. And the hard part is, as, as this was cultivated as the, again, the Pharisees took the law, the law, what God told us to do, and they, they uh, uh, superimposed a, another structure, another framework of, of laws so that we can make sure that we are applying these things. And they weren't scriptural, but they sounded all right. They sounded all right, like we're going to try to do these things. And, and many times uh, there was a, an undue focus on the externals. 
on the, on the, on the external things that people saw. It was about the what and not so much about the why. Yeah, we got to maintain this sense of piety, maintain this sense of righteousness because that's what the law says to do. But they forgot about grace. They forgot about mercy. They forgot that the law was our tutor to lead us to a need for grace. And sometimes uh, when, you, when it, you gravitate in this way, when you focus on the what and not the why, you slip into a dangerous form of legalism. And what I mean by that is you become consumed with public window dressing of piety. Jesus said things like, uh, you Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. You look so beautiful on the outside. You think you've got everybody fooled by how you're living righteously. But on the inside, which is the heart, the why, on the inside, he said, you're full of dead men's bones. The outside doesn't match the inside. Your relationship with God is more important than maintaining some sense of this external righteousness and piety and let people think that you got it all together when really on the inside you are in need. And it's about humility and honesty with God as opposed to somehow maintaining some external presentation of righteousness. And this is where Jesus just butted heads repeatedly with the Pharisees. So go to Mark chapter 2 and look in verse 18. We're going to, we're going to, we left off last week at verse 12. We're going to revisit verses 13 through 17 in a moment. But I think verses 18 through 22 give a fitting introduction to this idea of the Pharisees and how, how we really, really need to think about ourselves. And quite frankly, every Christian in this room needs to check themselves in this way and ask themselves, do I have this heart of a Pharisee as I often have had to do as well? Listen to this starting in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting but yours are not? Think about the, the nature of that question. The nature of that question is, well, Jesus, we're doing all this incredible stuff. We are fasting regularly and we don't see your disciples fasting. There's this comparison game already. Look at what we are doing. Look at what you and your people are doing. Something doesn't fit right here and something is off with you guys. What's wrong? In other words, what's wrong with y'all? Okay, what's wrong with you guys? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. This is the first analogy. Jesus never gives a direct answer here. He's just dancing around this, and you'll see why in just a moment. He's explaining this idea of the, the, the groom and the groomsman, and then he gives this another example of uh, this unshrunk, uh, this new patch on an old garment. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one, here's the third one here, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This is what he's calling for. Now, to go back to the root of the question, Pharisees were like, why don't you fast like we do? Now, back in that time, the Pharisees, and this is not, this is not scripture, this is just, again, they're superimposed kind of legalistic ways. Pharisees, we fast on Monday and we fast on Thursdays. That's what we do. Why, why do you do that? Well, that's just what we've always done, so that's what we do. And by the way, fasting is an incredible thing, right? Fasting is when you deprive yourself of, of food. 
It's a time to demonstrate one's devotion to God. And Jesus even kind of helps us to see that, that fasting sometimes uh, is about mourning. It's a, it's a time uh, to, to be honest about where one is with God. It's a time uh, of repentance, maybe, possibly even, as we fast. And so as the Pharisees are, are, are pointing this out, uh, they, they want everybody to realize, including Jesus, uh, that what they do, the public demonstration of this, is, 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 is important. To demonstrably fast. To let everybody know, you know, and, and Jesus talks about this later as he's actually critiquing them that they go around acting sullen. They, they actually go around kind of like acting like their dog just died. I'm, I hope nobody's dog just died. I shouldn't have said that. I had somebody, that happened one time in youth group when I was preaching about that and somebody's dog had just died. I apologize for that if, I, if your dog just died. But you know what I mean, like somebody who's just downtrodden. When somebody was fasting uh, in that time, they would walk around like they were fasting, and they would put ash on their face, and it was a, it was a way of kind of like drawing attention uh, to their super spirituality, like, woe is me, I'm doing without today. You know, somebody, maybe you've been around somebody who's announcing their fast. This is what Jesus says, to do things quietly when nobody else sees them. Because there's a, a different motivation in that. And again, they were drawing attention to themselves in this kind of practice. And, and again, the, the, the point here of, of those Pharisees was to draw some kind of comparison. Like, well, why don't your disciples come up to that kind of level of devotion? Uh, why, why are your disciples seemingly so freewheeling? You know, they don't, they don't give in to the, the discipline. They don't insert this discipline in their lives. And this is where Jesus gives these three analogies. He's trying to help them understand. Well, first of all, uh, when he tells the story of the bridegroom and the groomsmen, he says, hey, you know, there's a time for fasting. And that's usually when there's like a sadness or a longing. But guess what, guys? There's good news here. The Messiah has come. There's a time for joy. This isn't the time to fast. I'm going to be gone one day, and then they can fast. But they need to understand and see that the Messiah has come. The time should not be missed. Morning will come later. And I am ushering in, Jesus is, is saying here, explaining, I'm ushering in a new way of relating to the God of the universe. And so we need to enjoy this season. This should be a time of laughter. This should be a time of, of, of worship and of celebration. The time for longing will come later. You see, the Pharisees had constructed this imposing, lengthy qualification of what it looked like to follow God. You had to take this step, this step, and this step. And this, quite frankly, added or imposed this whole list of what to do and what not to do in order to honor God. Now, honoring God is a holy pursuit. It's important. We should. But, but when you impose this framework, extra biblical, by the way, there's a whole list of things that they could and could not do. When you, when you superimpose that kind of framework, it actually uh, it provides the opposite effect. It actually restricts the people. Listen, it actually restricts the people instead of calling them to a celebration. Now it's making people feel terrible about themselves. Yes, fasting is a great personal discipline, but who in the Bible said that you're supposed to do it twice a day? That's not what the Bible says. That's an overreach. And Jesus is trying to help them to see, guys, you, you're, you're overreaching here. You've, you've applied this framework of, of a super, uh, super righteousness here that's not in the scriptures. And he tries to tell them, I've come to set people free. And that kind of, that kind of freedom is going to create a tension. And this is what the other two pictures that Jesus gives describe. The first he describes is a, a, a new patch that you put on an old shirt. Now, uh, who in here buys pre-shrunk 
cotton t-shirts, pre-shrunk. Does everybody, anybody like to buy 100% cotton shirts that aren't pre-shrunk? I don't, because when I don't buy a pre-shrunk shirt and I wash it and put it in the dryer, I get a belly shirt or a crop top. <laughs> and that ain't pretty. Right? And Jesus is saying, you got this old shirt and you put this new, again, this new unwashed patch on it. And you sew it up real nice and put the sutures and you cut it to make it fit into that hole. And that, that patch is, is brand spanking new. Let's say 100% cotton, not pre-shrunk. And then you wash it. Now, Jesus didn't have a dryer, but let's just say you shove it in the dryer. What happens to that, that new patch? It shrinks up. Well, guess what happens uh, to that patch? It shrinks up and it creates a tension. It creates a tension on those sutures. It creates a, a tension in the stitches there that were around that old garment. And now you've got this tension that's there. And this is what Jesus is trying to, to get them to understand. There's a new framework coming, and it's going to put tension on what you, have, what you thought it should be like. And this is the significance of this. He said, listen, you, you've got to understand, my teaching is a reformation movement. It's a new teaching. And it's not going to line up with the old way, the old garment of the Pharisees. And I'm expanding, Jesus is saying, I'm expanding the faith. And I'm clarifying what wasn't working in the old system of the Pharisees that they had constructed this extra biblical way of trying to superimpose. Yes, we need to honor God, so that means we should fast regularly. Well, well if you really love God, you're going to fast on Mondays and Thursdays because that's what people do. Well, where is that in the Bible? Well, that's just our tradition. And you see, Jesus is trying to say, no, 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 no. Hold on, bro. Hold on. We, we're going to fast, and there's a time for fasting, but that's not for now. Now is the time to celebrate. And it's going to put some tension here because you guys think you've got it all, you Pharisees think you've got it all figured out. You've got this little legalistic system that works. You check these boxes, you look a certain way, uh, you, you do certain practices, and if you fast on Monday and Thursday, obviously you're a super spiritual person as opposed to somebody else here in the story. And, and when Jesus comes in and goes, no, nah, we're not fasting on Monday and Thursdays. <laughs> we're going to throw a party. Well, let's invite all the sinners. Let's invite all the tax collectors and sinners. And uh, let's just shower people with grace and love. It just it rocks the system. It's the same picture that's given here of the uh, new wine in old wineskins. Remember, a wineskin is made out of leather. And an old wineskin has already had the process of being filled with unfermented wine. What happens when, wine fer when grape juice ferments? It expands. So it would have expanded that old uh, wineskin. So it's already been expanded to its limit. And then you take the old wineskin and you pour new grape juice into it and you lock it up. What's going to happen uh, to that old wineskin that's now full of, of, of new grape juice that's going to ferment? What's going to happen to the stitching of that old wineskin? As that, that fermentation happens and that grape juice begins to expand, there's going to be a tension. There's going to be a stretching. And in fact, it might bust the old wineskin. And this is why Jesus says at the end of that passage, it's better to go with new wine and new wineskins, not just put new wine in old wineskins. In other words, there is a new framework here. And I'm calling you back to a place of righteousness that's not about this superimposing of this legalistic system. I'm calling you to a, a, a new relationship with God. And, and, and this is going to challenge your preconceptions about what that looks like. I'm going past the externals and I'm focusing on the heart. And it's not going to look like what you think it is. So keep that in mind, all right? He's challenging them. He's challenging the status quo here. He's challenging 
this picture of what, how they thought God should be. He's challenging the burdensomeness of their, their legalism. Go back to the scripture here. Now we're going to back up to verse 13 through 17 here. Listen to the first few verses here. This kind of gives you some understanding maybe as you read this passage. So once again, verse 13 in Mark 2. So once again, Jesus w- went out by the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, Jesus gives the same command that he gave to uh, the fishermen, the two sets of fishermen, two brothers that he's already called uh, to be disciples. Uh, this guy, Levi, just happens to come from a different profession. He has a different, a different job, right? But he tells him the same thing. Follow me, he told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, Levi becomes Matthew eventually. Verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, by the way, notice, I mean, verse 14, Jesus says, Levi, follow me. By verse 15, Levi is hosting a party at his house. The former tax collector has now invited all his other tax collector friends and other various and sundry sinners, as is described here. They were eating with him and his disciples. And then it says, it gives us this little qualification, for there were many who followed him of that group. This is cool, by the way. And, and as, you, as, you, uh, as you hear this, I haven't told you yet the next few verses of how the Pharisees respond to this. But, but think about just for a moment this party and think about what's happening here. I love this about Levi's calling. God, uh, Jesus tells him to follow him from his old job. Where seemingly, he leaves behind his old job. And what does it mean? What does it look like uh, when, when Levi follows Jesus? Well, he leaves it all behind. And then he invites all his other friends to, to be a part of it. Now, this was controversial because Levi was a tax collector. Now, maybe, maybe you know all about this, about what a tax collector was in the first century. But it's pretty cool, actually. In the first century, you know, the, the, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, had been occupied by the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire, uh, just by the, the breadth of its uh, needs, bureauc- bureaucratic and military-wise, they would exact uh, taxes from the people. And they had a set tax rate that they needed from the people. And so they would co-opt with Jewish nationals, okay? And they would say, let's just say, you've got to get X amount of money from this population of people. And by the way, how you get paid is that you skim off the top. So you need to, if I'm asking for 15%, you need to take 18% and that 3% is yours. And by the way, this wasn't about poverty when tax collectors did this because, hey man, more initiative, more money you can skim. You see, if you had good talents in this way, if you could, you know, kind of you know, bend people's arm, if you could, you know, intimidate people, you could take more money from them. And so there was a reward here based upon how much effort you put into this. And so these guys, uh, the tax collectors, were seen as a dishonorable lot. They were traitors. They were seen as people who extorted money from their own family. And so obviously, most Jewish people did not associate with people like this. They were seen as traitors. I mean, obviously, by their actions, they hated their own people. So why would you show kindness? Why would you show kindness to somebody like that? He doesn't deserve it. Why would you call them to be your disciple because of the way he's living? Jesus, why would you share a meal with him? And then he invites all his other sinner friends and tax collectors to his house. Why are you going to throw a party for them, the Pharisees would say. And by the way... Uh, they weren't at the party. They didn't get invited. They're kind of on the, they're kind of on the outside looking in somehow. You know, I think about 
the big, you know, obviously Levi had a big house because he was a tax collector. Maybe he had a big courtyard. Maybe he had a big fence and a big gate. <laughs> and, and again, the Pharisees weren't used to this. They weren't used to not being invited, especially to somebody who was a rabbi, especially to somebody who claimed to have this kind of divine authority. But here uh, we have uh, this party happening. Levi's been invited. I love this, by the way. Verse 14, Levi gets invited. By verse 15, Levi's throwing a party for his lost friends and, 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 and showing them Jesus, helping them, introducing them to Jesus who had changed his life. By the way, uh, I believe this could be a principle for all of us. If you choose to follow Jesus, Jesus is probably going to turn you around and send you back out into the world uh, to show people what he's done in your life and call other people to a relationship with him. This is exactly what Levi did as he followed after Jesus' command to follow him. And this blew the Pharisees' minds how a religious leader was relating to outsiders like this. Why would they treat uh, these, these, these people nicely? Why would Jesus see people like that? Because, to be honest, uh, and this is where I see myself as a Pharisee, uh, Pharisees like their holy huddles. Pharisees like to get in their little Bible studies and just talk about God and talk about all God, that God is doing. Uh, many times uh, the Pharisees would gather together and they'd just get real critical of the culture and critical of how everybody out there couldn't live up to their holy standard. And instead of compassionately engaging outsiders and calling them to repentance, calling them to a love relationship and showing them what they had in, 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 in the Lord, they actually saw outsiders as the enemy. They lost empathy for those who had strayed from the standard. And instead of hurting for them, they ended up hating people that were different than them and on the outside. They would say things like this. Maybe, maybe you're a Pharisee and you've uttered things like this before under your breath. If those people would just get right with God, then they'd come up here to our standard. We're not going to stoop down to their existence. They, when they find God, they'll come find, they'll come up here to us. That mindset sounds very familiar. But the opposite of that is seen in this party in verse 15. Levi's really, really nice house being opened up in this group of seekers, sinners, tax collectors, and they're all like drawn to Jesus because Jesus has a peace about him. Jesus has a teaching that frees them. Jesus talks about repentance. Jesus talks about leaving your life behind, leaving your wickedness behind and, 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 and pursuing God. And this is like a breath of fresh air. And it obviously made sense to many of them because we're told at the end of verse 15 that many of them chose to become followers of Jesus. You would think that maybe that would make religious people happy, but the people on the outside looking in were watching this with perplexed gazes. They couldn't understand, for one, why they weren't invited. And then they reason to themselves, if this guy's the Messiah, why is he hanging around with notorious sinners like that? Like those, like those, those people. I mean, wouldn't he want our stamp of approval? Why is he, why is he having a party with them and, and leaving us on the outside? Go to verse 16 of Mark 2. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they ask his disciples, why does he eat? This is like a rhetorical question. And the obvious answer in their mind is, you know, something's wrong, right? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus cuts to the quick. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, well, it's not the healthy. In other words, you guys got it all figured out. 
you guys got this righteous thing down. You got your laws, you got your framework, you got your traditions of what to do to make it look all pretty on the outside. You don't need somebody like me. I've come to save people when they're sin. You are perfect. You are healthy, obviously. On the outside, you look so whitewashed and pretty. You don't need somebody like me. You're the healthy ones. I've come, and by the way, in this whole analogy, Jesus is the doctor, right? You guys are healthy. I've come for, I've come for the sinners. I've, I've come for the sick people. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, y'all don't need me. Need me. This is point number three. Jesus works only where he's quote-unquote needed. Again, this, this comparison here of sickness with sinfulness, which makes Jesus the doctor as he's kind of <laughs> analyzing the state of where these people are. He's kind of saying to them, hey, you know, you've got yourself convinced that you got it all figured out. you got this religion thing locked down. By the way, I hope most of us in the room, as we think about our own condition, that we might could agree with God and go, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sinner. In fact, when we talk about salvation and we talk about people coming to Christ, the first step to salvation is owning the fact that you are a sinner and confessing that to God and owning that fact. You know, admitting to God that you need Him. You see, these people right here, these Pharisees that are on the outside of the party looking in, they don't need Him. They don't, they don't need uh, a Savior. You've heard it said, you know, you've got to get lost before you can get found, you know. Uh, somebody's got to understand they're sick before they can go to a doctor. Well, here, uh, the Pharisees, they didn't need Him. They they'd considered, kind of got their own way of, of, of figuring out this righteousness thing. They had their own laws. They could keep all this. And in the, the pridefulness of, of, their, of their condition and their, 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 their understanding of how the things, they, things work, they didn't need Jesus. Maybe you think you don't really need Jesus too. Maybe you think, you know, as long as I don't do this, don't do this, and do this, and don't do this, then I'm, I'm good. God... God will see me as acceptable. And it's hard because people like the Pharisees don't think they need it. And it's interesting because in that system, you've got to kind of keep up perception of righteousness, which leads into a dangerous form of legalism, which leads into this, this idea that when people get together, uh, you've got to appear like you've got it all together. It's what Jesus talked about with whitewashed tombs. But he said on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. The hard part about that is, is that when, when we feel like we've got to keep up this perception of perfection, and yet we, we know we're sinners at our core, at some point that, that fragile house of cards falls as sin kind of spills out of us. What do you do then? I've always thought it would be the hardest job in the world to be the Pope. The Pope of the Catholic Church. Why? Because he's like infallible, allegedly. Everything he says is parallel to Scripture, allegedly. Is that me? CVS Pharmacy, we won't answer that one today. <laughs> Thank you for your service, all right. What would the Pope, think about the Pope every morning, he's got to wake up and everybody looks to him like he's like got it all together. And I know this because he's a human being just like you and me. He knows he's fallible, he knows he's sinful, he carries his own sinfulness and yet people look to him in this way and there has to be this sense of him having to carry up this like this false face, uh, this, this perception of invincibility, and inside he knows, 
He knows that he needs grace. He knows that he needs mercy. And, and this is the thing. There's a certain level of honesty here that's required uh, for Jesus to do a work in your life. And in this place, uh, these guys have got it all together. And this is why Jesus confronts them and says, yeah, you got your righteousness all worked out, you with your own laws and stuff. You just keep that up. Because you keep that up, then, you know, you, you, you keep yourself uh, from needing, needing somebody like me. You don't need a Savior because you don't think you're a sinner. And this is the trap of legalism. When you create a system of rules to appear like you've got it all together, when on the inside you know how desperate you really are and how sinful you really are. And there's a liability there because some, at some point it will become exposed and it will all come crashing down and you feel this pressure of having to keep up a false face. I pray that never happens with us. Can I just pause here and take up a little prayer on our behalf? Jesus, we need you. We, we are desperate for you. We don't have it all figured out. We are imperfect people. We are sinners, and we are in need of a Savior. And we just ask you to commune with us. We don't have it all figured out. We don't have our righteousness worked out on our own. We won't excuse you away. We won't keep up false pretenses. We'll be honest with each other, and we'll be honest with you because we are desperate for you. Do, you. do you really need Jesus, or have you got it all figured out? Seriously, have you got the system all figured out? Because Pharisees don't need him. Okay, skipping down here, last, last little bit here. Now, it's a lot of scripture, but it's, it's one point, okay? Go back to Mark 2, starting verse 23. I'm going to roll into chapter 3. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, well, have you never read that David, what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high, priest, he entered, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then roll into chapter 3, verse 1. Just the first six verses. Another time, this is another Sabbath, another time where Jesus is con confronting here. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Again, they're kind of watching. They're the monitors here, making sure everybody's doing their thing for everybody else's sake. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. I mean, a miracle just happened in your worship service on the synagogue, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath day. And you can't celebrate because of your framework of how this doesn't fit. And in this moment, they leave from this kind of amazing miracle moment to figure out how to kill Jesus. It's like incredible when I think about it in that way. And this is the last point, is that Jesus emphasized relationship over man-made rules. These two stories back to back. Jesus, why do you pick grain on the Sabbath? Well, guys were hungry. <laughs> Jesus, why do you heal a man on the Sabbath? Well, because of a friend is hurting in need, and I, I need to help my neighbor. In both of these stories, uh, 
that Jesus is challenging the laws that the Pharisees had of how to keep the Sabbath, how we have this substructure of rules and regulations so that we can honor the Sabbath. Now, again, honoring the Sabbath is not a bad thing, and it's a command from God. Now, by the way, in the Jewish culture, from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday, the whole nation, as best as they could, paused. And it was a pattern established by God for them to cease their work. It was started in the week of creation. On the seventh day, after God created the heavens and the earth, on the seventh day, God chose to rest. And the reality was, if God chose to rest, then maybe we should too, right? Now, back in that time, it was sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. After Jesus burst out of the tomb on a Sunday morning, it changed everything, including when Christians observe the Sabbath. We now observe Sabbath on Sunday because Jesus burst out of the tomb on a Sunday. And this is the pattern that's been set for us. You're supposed to take a day each week to stop, to pause, to rest from your labors, to recoup, and really, honestly, to worship, to spend time in contemplation. Because you and I both know life gets really busy we get all, you know, moving, and, and the, the world's working in a 24-7, 365 pattern. It doesn't stop. And so it's countercultural now for you and I to hit the pause button at least one day a week and just not. Some of us go to the lake. Some of us go to a ball game. But really, the intention was for us to worship, to be still long enough to hear the voice of God because we get so busy. And we fill our lives with so much activity, seemingly good things even. But you have to pause. This is what uh, God commanded us to do. We need rest. It's a personal discipline to pause your life and commune with God. Listen to this from Exodus chapter 20. Given to Moses here about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Again, awesome command, we are supposed to have a Sabbath. Now, what happened was the Pharisees took that command and said, okay, Sabbath, need to keep it holy. Well, let's take the next progression of that. Well, how do we keep it holy? And this is where they get into trouble. Because they were, literally wrote books, literally books of things you could and could not do for you to keep the Sabbath holy. They created this through rabbinical tradition, a labyrinth of laws dictating what one could do, what one shouldn't do on the Sabbath in order to make it holy. The, the command was generic, and here they are. There are literally 24 chapters in a, a book, an extra-biblical book called the Talmud, which was written between the 3rd and 8th centuries after Jesus' time. But it was a, a historical recounting of the oral and the written tradition of the Jews and trying to keep the Sabbath holy. Listen to some of these rules from the Talmud. You should not carry a load heavier than a dried fig. Nothing larger than an olive can be eaten. Throwing an object in the air with one hand and catching it with the other is considered work. Sorry, jugglers. If the Sabbath overtook you as you are reaching for some food and the sun goes down, immediately you should drop the food to the ground. You should not take a bath on the Sabbath because you might spill water on the floor and inadvertently, inadvertently, you are then washing the floor by your spill. 
No sowing, no plowing, no reaping, no grinding, no baking, no threshing, no binding sheaves, no winnowing, no sifting, no dyeing, no shearing, no kneading, no separating of weaving two threads, no tying or untying a knot, no sewing two stitches. Chairs should not be moved along the ground because it would make a rut in the dirt and that would constitute plowing. I love this one. Women should not look in a mirror on the Sabbath because they would be tempted to pluck a gray hair, which would then work. <laughs> if somebody fell sick on the Sabbath, all you could do was try to keep them alive. That was the bare minimum. Keep them alive until after the Sabbath so they could get medical treatment. You could only travel 3,000 feet from your home, but if on the day before the Sabbath you stashed food 3,000 feet from your home, that would extend your home 3,000 more feet so you could go 3,000 feet from the place where you stashed the food so you actually could go 6,000 feet if you stored food 3,000 feet from your house. Get it? All these regulations... All these rules. And again, the heartbeat was we want to keep the Sabbath. We want to keep the Sabbath holy. But in this creation of these cumbersome rules, they actually became a burden to the people. And the day that was supposed to be a day of rest, a, a day of contemplation, a day of worship became a cumbersome, burdensome thing to the people. And it actually was counterintuitive. It became against the thing that the Sabbath was actually created for. Because you had to... Do all this stuff and keep mindful of all the things you can't do and when you cross that line and how to, how to maintain this thing. And instead of helping people grow closer to God, these added prohibitions actually hurt them. And this obsession with the minutia of all these laws and all these things, it actually felt like work. <laughs> work on the Sabbath, which is the very thing initially that God said don't do. And if you're on the Sabbath and you're hungry, by all means, go get a few heads of grain to chew on. If your friend that you see is in need, take care of their physical needs. Don't neglect helping your neighbor. By all means, help them in this moment. And this is why Jesus qualifies in Mark 2, 27 and 28 when he says, The Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. It's not to be some superimposed regulations on you. You've just got to make sure, listen, make sure you stop. Make sure you pause. Make sure you have some time dedicated to recuperation, to rest, and contemplation with your God. Can I just be honest? I work on Sunday. When's my Sabbath? Well, I take off on Fridays. That's why the office is closed here on Fridays. That's my Sabbath day. We all should have a day of rest. It's a day that you rest and you worship. You pause your life. Because you and I both know we can get so self-absorbed in our busy lives that we can miss God altogether. And especially if you add on all these rules and regulations, you've missed the boat altogether and you become obsessed with that as opposed to communing with your God. So rest when you can. Honor God as you can. If you get hungry, go grab a few heads of grain. If you see somebody hurting, go help them. How does that apply now? Well, this was the traditions. These were the traditions of the Pharisees. And, you know, they had all these rules and regulations and, and, and you know, we pick on them, but, you know, we've got kind of unwritten rules and regulations about evangelical Christianity like I don't know what Bible version you use where in the Bible does it say which Bible to use or what what how do you cut your hair or God forbid you wear a hat in a church service some of y'all wearing hats I'm cool with it I'm just saying that but some people get really upset about that I usually take my hat off when I go into indoor places but again where is that 
Is that a tradition of man? What color your hair is, whether you have tattoos or not? How long your skirt is? We Christians are pretty good at like creating this super subset of relative righteousness to make ourselves pretty good, things that we can measure, things that we can point out to, that that's wrong or that's wrong about other people. We can become so obsessed with imposing a lot of superficial rules. Here you go. Ready? It's the same, the same result. It can actually prohibit us from being connected to God because we get so obsessed with the minutia of the little traditions and little things that we got to keep going on in our little way of worship. And I can get so ingrained, I can get so caught up in that that I actually lose the point altogether. Jesus is saying, Sabbath's a day of rest, but you've got to live, man. You've got to eat. Sick men deserve to be healed and find attention to. You've got to find that, that balance there and honor God, yes. But don't allow these other things to become obstacles that keep you Literally keep you in your observance of those things. Keep you from relating to the very God whom you're trying to relate to. So, that's why I consider myself a Pharisee. Because I think about stuff like that. It crosses my mind. I have to catch myself. These little traditions, these little things that we're supposed to do, or the Baptists do or don't do. And I've got to be careful that I don't put so much of an importance on those things that they actually get in the way of my dependence upon the Lord for mercy and grace because if it were not for the grace of God, there go I also. Jesus is more concerned about your heart than about the externals. He wants to make sure that all this good stuff you've got up here in your head has traveled the 18 inches from your head down to your heart. And that you're walking in a relationship with Him. And sometimes we can get relig religion can actually stand in the way of that. Don't you let that happen for you. Don't let it choke out. Listen, don't let that choke out your relationship with God. Because it can't.